Welcome back, listeners. Welcome back to another week uh, with your favorite two imposters. And today we are super excited to bring you a lovely conversation that we had with Cornell Verdeja Woodson, who is Headspace's Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. We love him. We loved talking to him. He is such a bright light and such just a an effusive and compassionate person to talk to and has so many amazing ideas and inspirations working in this space. And yeah, can't wait for you to, to listen in. We cover everything from his, his retorts to people and trolls on Facebook and LinkedIn. So I got some advice there to his experience in the classroom through Teach for America, which we obviously had some common ground in related to a little bit. And yeah, he, I mean, I, I think I've been quoted on the podcast as saying Cornell for president. I still believe it. Stand I believe by that. Stand I, by I, that. I stand by it now more than I did before we talked to him. And um, yeah, I mean, he just like, oh my gosh, just every point he makes, I'm like, yes, that is exactly yes. right. That is exactly yeah. right. So if you want, you'll hear a lot of those nuggets in this episode, but if you want to follow him on LinkedIn um, to to just see some of his retorts and see some of his just like awesome bite size, like points that he just hits home. Um, um, really, really try to go for that. Uh, I would, I would highly recommend, sorry. Now there's some construction and it's really bothering me <laughs> and I can't focus. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is a great episode. Um, I want to say that this is kind of our, our Juneteenth episode, I want to say, and I'm not sure That's if, true. if this is something that we say, Happy Juneteenth. I'm really, you know what? I've been wondering the same thing. And, and I also, um, you know, happy for it's, it's, it, it doesn't evoke feelings of happiness. I mean, the end of slavery, sure. Yes. Um, was a necessary thing, but knowing how the history in in America has played out, um, doesn't really point to like the, you know, happy times, super happy times. So I'm wondering how, um, you know, how, how, how the celebrations of that holiday, uh, should be located. We touched on it a little bit with, with Cornell, but, um, I think acknowledging that it is Juneteenth, it was Juneteenth Mm -hmm. and, um, and acknowledging that we have a long way to go, but acknowledging like as a federal holiday, that this is a really important day, especially when we used to celebrate bullshit days, like Columbus day, if we can say Columbus day was a holiday, then I mean, obviously the end of slavery is cause for celebration. Um, but obviously long way to go. And this is not, uh, this is not a way to, it it doesn't really like alleviate any suffering or anything. I think the acknowledgement is a tiny, tiny, tiny step to, uh, to, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all about, we, and we get into this in, in the episode as well, but it's, it's all about what actions do we take on that holiday? Like, yes, it's a, it's a step to have it recognized, but it's only the first step. And there's so many more steps to go for. Now we have this federal holiday. What do we do with it? How do we make it impactful? What conversations are we having? Like you said, what sort what in terms of reparations can we do? Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Something to think about. Something to think about. And we'll be thinking about it. 
and you'll be listening to our episode. (laughs) Yes, you will. Enjoy. All right, so today we have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Cornell Verdeja Woodson, Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Headspace with us. Um, And a career in diversity and inclusion was not really something he fathomed during his search to find his purpose in the world. But through his lived experiences, he realized that his true calling was to work with people to make the world better for those who will come after. He is passionate about establishing relationships and collaborating to facilitate cross-cultural dialogue and establish more inclusive environments. Cornell also worked at Cornell University, Cornell at Cornell, too perfect, Um, and he did teach for America. So we're kind of soulmates. We have a lot in common in our history that we're definitely going to get to, Um, but welcome, Cornell. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yay. And I'm I'm so glad that we called out the Cornell at Cornell because I've been thinking about it all day. Can you imagine working there, though, as a Cornell? Like, it is, it's exhausting, actually. (laughs) I was going to say, I bet you've never heard that joke. Oh, my goodness. Who's the dad that gives that joke, right? It's it's a a common dad joke, right? Um, And I went to Ithaca College, actually, for undergrad. So I have been hearing it for Lord knows how long. And then I worked at Cornell, and it just was amplified. So... (laughs) Oh boy. Yes. (laughs) That's hilarious. I bet that played a role. And I bet you were like, it's time. I might as well work here. I'm I'm telling you, it's my, I I had left Ithaca, New York for about seven years. I, you know, I did Chief America. I went on a master's. I work at NYU. Um, And then this job opened. I was like, why not? Right. (laughs) Um, And so, and I'm pretty sure when I saw Cornell come across their desk on a resume, they're like, we have to talk to him. Like, this was too funny. So it was, it was a good time. It was a good time. I love that. I'm glad we're back. We're we're able to bring back that dad joke for a year for yes. you since you haven't yeah. been able to hear it for a while. Nostalgia, yeah. nostalgia. <laughs> I'm glad we can do that. Um, I wanna I wanna just start off with what you just said. Your first job out of college, which was Teach for America. Uh, we're fellow core members. I was Chicago 2012. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to hear from you. Um, just how your experience was at TFA and if um, those experiences at all informed the work that you chose to do after. 100%. You know, I went into Teach for America with the idea. I always knew I wanted to do higher education. Um, You know, I had some great mentors who were student affairs professionals and um, the president of Ithaca College at the time has been my mentor since she was the president. So I was really close with her. And so I wanted to follow in her footsteps. And um, so for me, doing Teach for America was about understanding what black and brown and low-income children who do make it to college, what are they bringing with them in terms of needs, right? Um, And lived experiences that we need to build higher ed around to be able to sustain and support them. And then for those who don't make it, what, what, what's missing, right? How can, higher ed support that and getting more low income and black and brown kids into higher ed. And so, you know, that experience informed so much more than just my practice of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it informed me as a human being and how I choose to navigate this world and this life um, and really trying to create an 
I'm not going to cry because every single time, and Taylor, you probably can relate to this, when you think of your kids, like they're not your students, they're your kids. Like, those are my children. I birthed, I birthed them. <laughs> Literally, right? <laughs> like, and I'm a man. I don't, I'm not birthing anything. But like, <laughs> but like, they are my babies. And they still are. And many of them are married. They have children of their own. But they're still my kids. And so I, I always cry when I think of them. Um, but like just creating a world where they and those who come after them can just flourish and thrive. It's really important to me. I love that. Sorry, Monica, to keep talking, but obviously this is something that is, um, is so close to my heart. Um, and, and my kids were babies. They were first graders. So, yeah, yeah. so like, I, I totally felt that. And, um, it's funny you mentioned, you know, we would preach, we're going to college. We had all these chants and songs about college, college, college as like the end all be all, but you're so right. If, if the support is not there at the college level, once they get there, like, that's not the end, that's, that's the beginning. Um, and, um, I think that's the the main point of teacher America is while many of us don't stay in the classroom, we keep that spirit of, um, of like looking out for, for students or, or people like our students in every job that we do. I've done a lot in education and even in volunteer work. And it's just kind of always at the, in the back of my mind. Um, so I'm so glad I had that primer, like right out of college to say like the education system is effed up. And there are so many, but there are so many angles that we can kind of attack that from and support um, our students. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and what I love about, you know, I I have a love-hate relationship with Teach for America. Um, It was rough, right? But I think the thing is, I don't think they care that you like them or not. What they care about is, do you love your kids? Yeah. Fight for your kids, right? Will you take what you've learned here? And if you choose to leave the classroom, will you take that wherever you go? medicine, law, tech, right? And use that to form how we create better environments for kids like this. And to me, when you think about it that way, that's dope, <laughs> right? I don't care if you don't like us. Do you love these babies, right? And, the, and, and are you passionate about changing the world that benefits them? And I feel like we were ahead of the curve. I mean, obviously I'm a white woman. I feel like being in Teach for America put me, the conversations that most of America is having right now in this moment were things, and I'm not saying I know everything, please, by, by all means, but, <laughs> but, but um, I just felt like I had, like I said, I had that primer of like, no, this is systemic racism. This is how it is. Like you are all racist and let's figure it out. Like, let's figure out here. You can directly see exactly how systemic racism manifests in um, yeah, yeah. many of these kids getting worse education case in point, me teaching them with no credentials, but I tried yeah. really, I tried really hard and I loved them. And, and what you said is like, I think like, like the love and like, just um, the care that, that, you know, you put that you put in the classroom and that that's what you carry with you. And, and even not even becoming like doctors or lawyers, it's like carrying that into conversations with friends that have never had been exposed or, you know, know anything about those communities. Um, but you're right. It was so challenging. I always say those were the hardest, that's, that's the hardest job I, I ever have and ever will have. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. So all, all the love for the kids and my fellow TFAers. <laughs> Cornell Taylor taught first grade, but were you teaching older students? Were you teaching like high schoolers? I taught fourth grade English. And when I say ninth grade, all four grades. Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, Yeah. And when I signed on, I was only teaching uh, ninth graders. 
And then I, and Taylor, as you know, you get there and they go, surprise, we actually need you to do this and this and this and this. And don't show them excitement and dedication and innovation because then they go, oh, right, you'll do this too. And I'm like, oh, yep. my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, ninth through 12th grade. And, I, and the thing is, I wasn't much, that much older than my 12th graders. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, yeah, I was going to say, because you were right out of school yourself. Yeah, well, it was t- 22, 23, and many of them were, nine, like, some, some of them were, nine, you know, due to, you know, this, their experience in the system, right? They were 19 yeah. years old, right? Um, so they were almost my peers, almost, right? You know, in terms of age. So it was very interesting, for sure. Interesting is, is a great way to describe yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> very much so. Very much so. <laughs> Those are my babies and they still are. Yes. Yes. That's amazing. I mean, I'm just hearing both of you talk about it because I've heard Taylor talk about Mm -hmm. it a lot, um, but I feel like it would be an equally difficult, but very different experience teaching students who are, you know, at the end of their kind of K through 12 Mm -hmm. experience and have had all of that time in between having different experiences and probably some good teachers and probably a lot of not so good ones as well. Um, for sure. And, and going into, uh, teaching them English, but I feel like you also must've been teaching them so much more than just English, you know, like I, I doubt that you were like, went to the administration. You were like, yes, I will not be innovative. And I'm just going to play movies and read from this book all day. (laughs) Like you become life coaches. Yeah. Like you're everything, right? You're teaching them how to manage conflict and how to thrive and be resilient and recognizing that, you know, one of the things I would say in my classroom, you know, my kids would get so upset with themselves that they didn't get the passing grade. And I would go, but look at where you were last time compared Mm -hmm. to, right? Like Mm -hmm. you've gone up four points. We're going in the right direction. Let's keep going, right? And so you teach them those those basic foundational skills that are really important for them as they go out into the real world because the real world's going to be tough. I was telling them all the time, it's going to be tough out there. You're not always going to win, but how do you stay in the game and keep fighting, keep pushing? That's the goal here. Um, So yeah, you become more than just a teacher. Like, you know, you're, you're, mind you, their parents would call me when their children we're acting up at home. So I, it would not be rare for me to get a call from a parent saying, uh, come get your son before. I- <laughs> I'm like, Which son are you talking about? And they, All right. I'm on my way. And then. Robert, oh my gosh. Really? Oh yes. And Robert hours with me because he needed mom and mom and Robert needed a break from each other. And right. And so I come and we go hang out. I talk to Rob. What's, what's going on? Why you act this way? So, you know, you, yeah. Uh, or I end up at their, their dinner table before they got home. Right. Yeah. Because I'm talking to mom about what happened at school today and how we need, need to partner. And they come home and go, Oh crap. He's here. I'm like, mm-hmm, don't think I wouldn't come to the hood. <laughs> I'll come to the hood. <laughs> they can have them wheels because I got Lyft and Uber. <laughs> so Wait, where, what city were you in? Atlanta. Atlanta. Atlanta, 2009. Wow. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, um, you know, it, yeah, it, it was interesting with the parents too. I, I feel, I feel so protective over, over the kids yeah. and I feel like 
um, even though there were challenges, you just, you just develop this level of empathy at all for all aspects of everything. So like, yes, you may be like, what is that parent doing at home? But you're like, yeah, you know, the circumstances, Yes. you know, like you cannot, you just, you just really grow to understand. And, and even like, adv- like, you know, I would have friends or maybe family members being like, wow, that's so nice that you're teaching those kids. And I'm like, uh-huh. I'm like, it's not, I'm not being nice. Like, it's right. not just also the, no, the whole, the whole like white savior thing was very, very at the top of my mind during the whole time. We, the, the, we don't have to spend this whole episode talking about this, by the way, but I just feel like, obviously, you know, but you know, um, I, I, I really struggled because we, we had this almost military, like strict, strict code of conduct for these little, little kids. Um, and it's, it's about, you know, 80% of our teachers were white, Mm -hmm. was 100% black. And we, you know, we're walking around like drill sergeants telling, it just, it, it really rubbed me the wrong way. Yes. I can, I can totally see what you're saying. And quite frankly, not even just, you know, as a black person going into a predominantly black space of having access to education and now having access to a certain level of financial wealth, right? There were things I had to think about too, that I wasn't a savior coming in into this situation. I definitely went into it thinking, yeah, I got to save these kids. And then I was like, whoa, my kids actually helped me remember that like, no, we don't need you saving us. We need you to work with us. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, I quickly got turned around on that one, but even I went into that with that. Right. Because yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard. So, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think there's like, there's this really romantic movie called like waiting for Superman, I think. Yes. And, and, and even in the title, like we're Superman, here we are. Exactly. <laughs> and, um, like, no, like you give them the tools they need. And, th- and I think this translates so well into my whole focus around diversity and inclusion is how are you giving people the tools they need in order to thrive in these environments, not just marginalized groups, but also groups who come from privileged backgrounds, the tools they need to create belonging, the tools they need to develop empathy um, and equity and things that sort. It, it's all the same, right? So like you take that Teach for American experience and yeah, it was an education in the classroom. It's all relatable to everything else. So I think that Teach for America is leaving a profound impact and it's not a, a commercial for teach for america but there's even a profound impact on um you know how people navigate the world so i love it i think so too yeah tfa we can move on what else y'all got we can move on yeah we can all circle back we can all circle back um i'd wanted to ask so after tfa you had a pretty long career working in higher education, right? And specifically, you were leading the diversity and inclusion program at Cornell, Cornell, yes. Cornell. Yeah. Um, and then you make, kind of made this, I'm not going to call it a pivot because you were still working in the DNI space, but mm-hmm. you transitioned into the business sector and specifically into tech um, yeah. and, and working at Looker, which I think is like a pretty big like data analytics platform, yes. right? They were, they were bought by Google. I wanted to know what made you transition basically from higher education into business and specifically into tech related business. Yeah, such a good question. Um, you know, I love students, right? It's always been my passion helping young people develop themselves and and see themselves in a in a, an amazing way that allows them to make the kind of impact on the world that 
they want to have. Um, but the industry itself, higher ed is such a slow industry yeah. change. Yeah. And I just got frustrated and exhausted by having, and as you know, I'm very energetic. Like I'm ready to work. I'm ready to move. I'm ready to do things. And I think that we've been doing so much talking for so long that higher ed, you can't get anything done in higher ed until you have a committee on the committee on the committee on the committee that's going to make the change. And then you look around 10 years later and we're just doing that thing that you proposed 10 years ago. It just, and I just got tired of it. Not to mention higher ed does not pay as well as, you know, tech, of course. And so I'm just thinking, if you're going to put me through all this drama to make a difference, let me go do it in an industry that's actually moving a lot faster. I know it doesn't know, you know, for folks who have only been in tech, it definitely doesn't feel that way. But compared to higher ed, it's moving a lot faster on things. Let me go, one, build my generational wealth, right, um, and be able to buy a home and support my mother and things that sort. Um, but let me also go to a place where they'll actually do some of these things that I'm hoping to do. And that's been my experience so far. Does tech have its own problems? problems. Amen. Absolutely. Um, but very different from being in higher ed. And I also felt like the bigger piece too, was that when you look back 20 years ago, right, we weren't putting our business on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok, and we weren't allowing strangers to use our home while we were traveling with Airbnb. There were so many things we weren't doing and tech really changed the way we navigate the world. So I thought, wow, if they can do that, what could we do if we embed DEI into all of this? How could we really have an impact on the world? And so it was that kind of vision that really drove me to go, you know what? It's time to go. And that's what I did. That, and were you the first DEI hire at Looker? Yes. Yes. So yeah. Awesome. So what so that was really like you came in from a higher ed background and now you're at this business company and you're tasked with basically building out this program and this team, what was, what was the first thing that you did? Yeah. To me, education will always be a part of my life. And so education was a big piece because you can't build something and you don't know what the heck you're doing. And so it's really beginning to talk to people and assess what don't you know, right? What are the things that you're just unaware of that are, are barriers? years to us actually increasing diversity within our hiring, retaining the diversity that we're trying to, to hire and, and that we currently have, um, and really creating a culture of belonging for everyone, right? And so education was huge. Building relationships is such a big part of being a DEI professional because trust is a big piece, right? You know, in order for people, and that's really with any leader, right? If people are going to follow you and kind of go on this journey, even when they feel uncomfortable, they have to trust you. And so I spent a lot of time talking to people, building relationships and things that sort, and really assessing what don't you know, and then providing educational opportunities for people to learn and engage so that when I came and asked you and talked about, hey, we need to increase Black, Latinx, right? You know, women in tech, none of this is new to you, right? And you understand why this is important. You understand how we're going to do it because, you know, we've already been through that educational piece. From your experience, so tell me what you think about this. I, I think in the last year, I've seen so many companies hire a director of DE&I. It's usually a person of color. It would be pretty inappropriate if it wasn't, I think. But um, it's and it seems like it seems like the burden is put on this one person coming in to solve DE&I. And it, mm-hmm. do, it, it doesn't sit well with me. I don't know how like it, it seems it seems weird, right? It seems like 
we don't know how to do it. Um, let's bring a person of color in and they're going to do it. And it's their problem. It just feels like, I'm right. not saying, I'm not saying that's the case at any of these places you've worked, but it seems to right. be a trend. And yeah. I want to, as someone who's doing that job, like I want to hear how, like how it sits with you and how, how it's, how it's been. Such a great question. I actually think that the way we do diversity right now is so indicative of how people understand it. So for example, most of the time when, when a company starts DEI work, the first thing they focus on is hiring black people, mm-hmm. race, right? I get it. And based on this country's relationship and history with racism, I get why. But we leave out so many of the other identities and dimensions of diversity that oftentimes go untalked about, right? Not to mention black people are also women. Black people are also disabled. Black people are also queer, right? They're also trans, they're veterans, right? There's so, there's so, much, so, so much crossover. And so when you see who's in these roles, it's black people, right? Because like, oh, okay, we got to hire more black people. So let's hire a black person to do diversity so we can hire more black people. So I actually think that we need more white people, more Asian people, more Latinx people, more straight people doing these roles because then everyone has skin in the game. Yeah. And understands that they're a part of the work that has to get done. Um, and and I, I, I was, I was smiling when you asked this question, because um, when I used to do, um, I used to do the diversity training at the Johnson School of Business. Um, and, you know, some of the, what this one white guy asked, why don't you see more white guys doing diversity? I said, that's a great question. You tell me, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> there's this kind of idea. And I, I think Taylor, you even said that like, you, you felt it would be inappropriate if a white person was doing diversity, why is that, right? White people, white people have the men particularly need to be a part of the conversation too yeah. and should be a part of moving the needle in the organization. Because guess what? When black people, Latinx people, when women talk about these things, we're just complaining. Yeah. But what happens when a white man who's straight and steps up and says, hey, this matters, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, people listen differently mm-hmm. when that happens. So it, I, I, it, it'll be interesting to see if we had more white straight men in particular who had no real entry point into this conversation around marginalization but were coming from strictly from a a privileged experience saying this matters so much that i'm going to get into this seat and really make sure that we're moving this needle right um and so it, it actually bothers me that so many dei people are of color versus more diversity yeah. in the seats so that they, they can see it from different vantage points it's so interesting because I think maybe I just can't think of a white man that I feel is equipped to do that job. I think that's why I said inappropriate because, you know, um, equipped with the skills and the communication and the understanding of that experience that they did do not have. Um, but you're so right that anyone, but a white man says something in there and they're complaining and it's, and it's probably harder to get, get buy-in from that. Yeah. It reminds me of an organization. It's called uh, White Men as Full Allies. They've mm. been around, so they're a consulting organization that's been around for a long time. And they do some great work around gender issues, race. Um, so there are white men out there um, that we just don't know about, right? Um, there are white women who are who, who are out there leading conversations on race, and do it. There's a woman who did the um the the blue eye brown eye study. If you heard of that study, she did that study in education, and it, it's it's an experiment on because obviously you know folks who usually have blue eye are usually white, 
and folks with brown eyes are usually black and of, and of color, right? And so she flipped the script and said, now in this society, people with blue eyes, you're dangerous. And she kind of gave people an experience of what it feels like to hear those words, right? And, you know, and, and she did this in like the 80s, right? Um, and she's a powerful, I mean, I, I think of Peggy McIntosh, right? Who wrote the uh, Invisible uh, Knapsack. We talked about privilege. So there's a lot of white pe- people out there who are doing the work, right? But I think because of this idea of right, white people can't talk about this stuff and the fact that it's only about racism, right? There's yeah. so many other things that we need to unpack that I think really allows people to come to the table, bringing their stuff with them so we all, all can have a conversation and help move the society where we need it to be. Totally. Well, one one last thing on that that you yeah. remind me is you, um, so you've brought, you've brought so many, um, you've brought so many trainings to headspace that I've, that I've been in. And one of them, um, you're just reminding me, you know, it's not just about race. We had one about, uh, during trans visibility month and, um, and just how we practiced, how we practiced in breakout groups, referring to people by they Uh and, and using appropriate pronouns. And I hear all the time now, like, Oh, I feel even a coworker of mine the other day was like, oh, I'm I'm not sure. It, it sounds it, it feels wrong grammatically, and I'm like, yeah, okay, yes, mm-hmm. but but like the and and that training was so great because we practiced it. Yeah. Um, we encouraged everyone to go and change their names in the HR software and on Slack, mm-hmm. um, and uh, which I'm embarrassed to say I you can see that I didn't do that on my Zoom, but it is on my Slack, and it's yeah. not, that's a great reminder for me. Um, but I just, I, uh, I just bring that up to say, like, you have brought train. I don't know if it's just you or, or your team, but, but these trainings that you've brought have been so just so they're so important and it's so good. Like I, I, I feel really energized after them and like hopeful, um, to learn, to learn and like, just be, a, you know, be, be part of that conversation and, and just grow, you know, empathy in, in those areas that I just am not as exposed to or don't have the experience. Um, there, there are so many more that we, that we've got to bring to continue to come. I mean, I'm thinking of three right now that we are like past due on. Um, but yeah, it, it's exhausting work and I I'm, I'm a team of one, so it's just me. Yeah. <laughs> so it's exhausting. <laughs> you find the, the most amazing people to come into these trainings though. Mm-hmm. And, and speak, I mean, you, you do such a great job too, in, in the modules that you're presenting, but just thinking, you know, specifically the conversation you led this morning around Juneteenth, which so many of us don't know really the history at all, because going back to education, it just wasn't taught. Um, so it's so, it's just such a bizarre feeling to basically find out about this incredibly impactful and significant holiday right in my 30s yeah. um yeah. and have and I thought the the point that uh that was made this morning especially about you know like yes recognizing it as a as a federal holiday is obviously an important step but what's so much more important is you know going forward how how we treat this holiday like is it just do, am I just going to get a bunch of emails for like 40% discounts. Right. On oh my God. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. And, yeah. and oh, that's a whole nother podcast. I think, like, no, I think about, them. I think about that all the time. It's like, yes. I don't want to, you know, I, pre- I appreciate the holiday, but I, it's, how do you, how do you actually get people to take it seriously? And how do you stop 
capitalism from doing exactly like capitalizing yeah, on it. Also, what how we treat the people whose mm-hmm. holiday this you know is is wrapped around right because like you know as Dr. Sean Abbasi Bravo was saying it's like you know you know funding our communities right our schools our housing system our neighborhoods that's reparations right that that's powerful a acknowledgement that like we had slavery and it has messed up this community we got to own it and honor it so we can finally move forward and move on and begin to uh, make the difference that we we need to make. And I'm very intentional about bringing in people outside of Headspace who are not me, because I think the more that's diversity, right? The more voices we all get to hear from, I'm helping you all build your network of people who you've heard from and things that sort. And, and I, that's really important to me that it's not just my voice you all are hearing, but you're hearing from different people um, who are also in this work and, and doing some great stuff. What one of the people we heard from was Bianca Louie, who I went to high school with. And I know no she was in my class. I, I love it. I saw her come across on the email like a few weeks before. And I was like, Bianca, what in the world? Um, uh-huh. And and I mean, tragically, we had that that uh it was uh, it was just an a it was like a stop. A, well, no. So it was before the Atlanta attack. So I think it was right. just for AAPI in, in the Bay Area. So the, the attacks in, in the there Bay had Area. been attacks going. On. Yes. OK, so there had already been. Yeah. Right. So um, she was coming in and literally that morning. I mean, the poor thing, like just went through this whole traumatic thing. And I just thought it was so I mean, I mean, so like strong of her that she came and showed up and she was like really honest and vulnerable with us saying that she, you know, was yeah. not herself. Like, this is really difficult. And I think even you, like you showed vulnerability too in that moment where I, I think that may have been one of the first times I had seen you just face like your senior face mm-hmm. talking on zoom. Yeah. And, um, I was, I, it made, it made me cry. I, I was like, I, I just, I bring this up to say that anytime I see a leader, you know, in your position, um, like show vulnerability, I think it's so important and powerful and, um, and not, not that many leaders do it. And I, I'm wondering if, if that's something that you, if that's kind of been how you, how you always lead, is that, is that something you've developed recently or. That's a great question. Yeah. I think that's always been a part of who I am. I'm, I'm very, um, what's the word I want to look for? I'm not an empath. Right. Cause like, but like, I feel mm-hmm. emotions when I see anyone being harmed. Right. Like it does not need to be me or someone who looks like me, like a human being being mistreated does something to me. Right. That yeah. just makes me want, that makes me angry. It makes me sad, all those different things. And so, you know, I think that's what has really fuels my work, right? I'm not just in this because I'm black and gay. I'm in this because I want trans people. I want women. I want, you know, uh, uh, my, my, my Jewish friends. I want, you know, all my friends who ever experienced being mistreated and, 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 uh, disregarded to never feel that again. Right. And so that has always been me. My grandmother was that way. Right. She was very empathetic and always felt with people. And so I think I just inherited that. Um, and it definitely comes out in my, my leadership style and how I connect with people for sure. Yeah. And I think it helps people connect with you. Like, I think if you're just delivering a message stoically on things that are deeply personal and painful and traumatic, it doesn't, 
it doesn't come across. It can't, you can't get that same effect. Not that you're trying to, you know, put on a show for us, but it's just, I, I, I'm, I'm the same way. I have a hard time like hiding my emotions at work. Uh So whether they're bad or I'm mad or upset or annoyed, like it is all (laughs) over my face. And my manager will be like, Hey, you didn't seem that happy in that meeting. I'm like, why do I always have to be happy? (laughs) My husband will say, you wear your feelings on your shoulder. I know what you're feeling every single time. Like, "Mm, I can't play poker. No poker for me. (laughs) I know. No, certainly not. Certainly not. No. Yeah. But I, I just think that's so powerful. And I really, I was like, man, who is this Cornell person? Like, love him. Cornell for president. Like, I think I've said that, I think I've said that on this podcast before. Um, but, uh, (laughs) I'm just, I'm just so happy we have you, honestly. Like, I I think, I think the work that there was a DEI committee for a long, long time. Um, and it's a lot of work for for people with a full-time job to do on the side and try to get people involved in. And so I'm so glad that We've allocated resources to right. really like follow through on these initiatives. It's absolutely, absolutely, and I'm so thankful for the folks who were a part of that grassroots effort to really get this where it is because you know that that group laid the foundation for what we're doing right now. So I, I really can't take all the credit for what we've mm-hmm. gotten to so far. Like I would argue, eighty percent of that credit has to go to the group of people who were here putting in the hard work yeah. to say this matters here's how what it needs to look like and got us to a point where this role now exists so if they're listening thank you thank you thank you i, I know i've said it thank you to them before but you can never say thank you enough yeah we just had dion on i think the week before last and he mm-hmm. he was obviously a huge part of that and he yeah. um you you kind of in your in your intro too you you say something very similar that he kept saying which was leaving this place better for the next Dion. And, um, and I think it's just like a great way for all of us to operate as, you know, as all minorities in the space, obviously, like I, it's so, it's so hard. Hard is the wrong word. It's complicated to talk about because I I don't want to ever put my white femaleness on the same plane as someone that has, you know, a grown up black in this country. Like that's just not the same. Um, but I liked what you said about how, like, you know, you are looking out for different minorities and it doesn't have to be this competition of who has had it worse. And we all should really like come together. Um, I actually had a, I, I've been posting on LinkedIn a lot, all of our listeners know, and I posted something that I thought was absolutely non-controversial. It was a video about, me confronting this guy that didn't look me in the eye or acknowledge my presence during a one hour interview, uh-huh. uh, uncomfortable, right? Weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he, he, he directed all his attention to the male, male counterpart. We were sitting feet apart. And so he found me, I'd been talking about it on the podcast. He found me through LinkedIn, reached out to like, apologize basically. Um, uh-huh. he, and he's a white man. And so we had, we just had like a conversation on the podcast to say like where we were both coming from, you know, this kumbaya moment, we can move past it. I let him know uh-huh. how I was feeling. So I posted this just being like, wow, how nice we got together and had this conversation. And yes. so many, mostly men, some women actually came out being like, it's not the interviewee's job to make you feel comfortable. Like that is not their job. Like you, it's your fault that you have all these issues. Like look within crazy, crazy stuff. And Uh, I kind of, I kind of got in this tit for tat with a man who, who said something to the effect of, well, 
I'm married with kids and I have a, um, I'm married with kids. And I would, if I saw you in an interview, I would think, Oh no, that's a cute girl. Like I'm going to be nervous. And I was like, okay. And so I, I, I responded like, I thought pretty diplomatically just being like, Hey, like that you're, you're treating me differently based on my gender. Like that sucks. And it makes me feel like I'm not, um, you know, not part of this. And, and basically he came back, he was Latino. He came back and said, wow, seems like you don't know what I go through. You seems like you, you fit, you feel like, I don't know how, what it means, how it is to, to be looked at differently in this world for something I can't control and, and listed all these stats about Latinos in tech, which I agree. You know, it's, it's, it's just, yeah, we can talk about all those things at the same exact time, but also about your response of you being about your potential infidelity. Is, is your business it has nothing to do with me because I happen to be cute. Like that's all, that's like a personal problem. And that to be your reason for why you wouldn't look someone in the face, you need, you need to go have a different conversation with someone else because it's so inappropriate, right? Like, come on. And it's just a total, I mean, one thing is the interviewee didn't look at anyone in the face. Yeah, that, yes, yes. Right? The whole conversation. You could have only looked at this one man, this one individual the entire time and they recognize that a whole other person was in the space. That is a, that's a conversation that has to be unpacked. What was that about, right? Um, and the, the excuses that people make about, oh. you know, it just, it just, it, it, it's so wild to me. And as you said, even women, we're coming oh. at you about this. And it's like how we internalize the internalized things, right? misogyny. I, I had to, I had to delete, I had to type and delete and type and delete saying like, wow, your internalized misogyny is showing delete, delete, delete. Okay. Um, wow. You should examine your, okay. Delete, delete. Like I could be- me because I type it and I leave it. <laughs> I, and honestly, that's actually, that's actually how I got started in DEI actually. Really? Yeah, I I used my Facebook as a platform for shit talking about these social issues. And um, I would literally spend hours responding to everyone and bringing the facts and the research. And it got to a point where people were like, what, like, you're good at this. One, how do you have time? Because you type essays <laughs> and you're always on point. Where do you know all this information? And like, you really should be doing this as a career and lo and behold here I am <laughs> and now I do it on LinkedIn because I don't use my Facebook as often so now, now I'm on LinkedIn doing the same thing and just really helping people you know checking people right like no like we're not going to make these basic assumptions or these basic excuses for why that's a problem right like let's own the fact that that was awkward that's weird that's that that you would look at one male individual but not the woman let's just call that what it is did he mean to probably not but is there some unconscious bias there that yeah. that led him to to behave in that way? For sure, let's own that so we can move on. That was the whole. I mean, that was the whole point of the post. Right. The whole point was that we talked, we understand, we're good. It's buried. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I just I, like even in that small interaction, I had to I had to turn my comments off because I, I was like, it was honestly really affecting me. Monica had to say. Ma'am, step away from the keyboard. <laughs> yes. It's it's yeah, a lot. I was like, go for a walk. Like it's a it lot. Like, it it yeah. it made my blood bo- and, and again, cool. as a white woman, just I'm not even at even a scale of I'm sure what so many other people uh-huh. deal with. And so you imagine what mm-hmm. trans people and oh people, my yeah. god. And yes. I was so frustrated and I couldn't believe these people. And by the way, this is some hot gossip. Mm-hmm. One man who used to be on my team 
Uh, oh, love this. Was <laughs> commenting, was commenting trolley comments and was liking everyone's post that was against me. Of course. Of course. I'm like, of course. No wonder you were fired. Honey. Um, it says so much more <laughs> about that individual. Did, and mind you, had I don't know if we're connected on LinkedIn or not, but we should be. And had I had I seen that, I would have got up in there and said, uh, she said what she said. <laughs> It's inappropriate. You still can. You still can. Yeah. Turn the comments back on. (laughs) The comments are on. My notifications are off. So I don't even know what's going on in there. But But I think you bring up a really good point, Taylor and Monica, too. It's like, you know, when you engage in this work, you really have to. And this is like, this is a part of why I I really wanted, when I saw this role at Headspace open up, I was like, oh my goodness. I have been talking about my mental health for quite some time about this in this work. And that when you choose to take this on, which we all should in some way find our locus of control of how we connect change, you do have to have a uh, plan in place for how you are going to take care of yourself. Who's your team? So where are the Monica's, right? Who tell you, hey, walk away for a second. You don't have to talk to, about that. You don't have to to address that one, right? That that mm-hmm. that's okay, right? Where are the allies, right, mm-hmm. in the space? The men who can go, I got this, boo. Let me let me get in there and let me tell these men what's up, right? And it's it's really important. And being a part of Meds uh, Headspace and working here just has really elevated my own mental health plan for how I stay in the game, right? To really make the change. And so I think it's such an important one to talk about. I actually did see uh, a post of yours, Cornell, on LinkedIn. I think it was from maybe a month ago addressing specifically mental health yeah. and going back to the the topic of being vulnerable, obviously not just at work, but in on your public-facing platform. Yeah. And I was just so Im- impressed with how you did talk about these allies that you have in your life, you know, your husband, your therapist, yeah. and how... and saying you'd had a difficult week and everyone has a difficult week, but we're so reluctant to -hmm. admit it. And we're so reluctant to talk about what we're, you know, I'm not saying everyone should be babbling about what they're chat, like learning in their therapy sessions, but I think it's so humanizing to bring that up. if, If something resonates with you and say, Hey, this is actually something that I've been working through. And, you know, maybe I can share some of that experience with you too. Uh, I thought that was just an awesome post. I was so happy to see it. Yeah. That post got so many likes and so many comments and I got so many people who messaged me saying, thank you for saying what I've been feeling. Right. And so my grandmother was, she was ever a official leader, right? When I, when I say official, she didn't have a, a official t- title that, you know, afforded her that role. Right. But she was a leader and she led by example. And so she wasn't just preaching stuff, but she also did it. Right. And so I've really been a, in my role as a, you know, a formal positional leader have always tried. And as a human tried to model the things that I am trying to help other people understand. And so a part of that is being vulnerable, sharing parts of myself with the public um, that others may not so that people can go, wow, that's how I'm feeling. And it's okay, right? To, to help to help people, you know, find space in this world that it's okay to feel and, and be thinking what you're thinking. Um, and here's an example of somebody putting it out there. And so just the impact that you can have when you choose to be honest. And, and, I, and while I, I agree with you, 
Monica, I don't think everyone has to be out there sharing what they're learning in there, but the beauty of what that could look like when we normalize taking care of your mental health, normalize therapy, normalize meditation, right? So that we can be a, a healthier society, I think is so powerful. Yeah. Otherwise you don't have the space to take on those, those battles that you want, you may feel really called to do if you're so burnt out from your work or, you know, interactions at work. It, it really, the, the, the work-life balance that headspace is so crucial and, and me learning that I don't have to say, sorry, I need to take the day off or sorry. I'm, you know, it's not, sorry. It's just like a fact of life and I will be doing this. Um, Maybe, maybe like, I apologize if this inconveniences anyone, but you know, got to put me, got to put me first. (laughs) And and that's particularly real for marginalized groups, right? Black and Brown people, women who are mothers, right? Like, you know, I was talking to uh, some, some moms the other day um, who just talked about how, like, I can't take that time away because that's when the decisions are being made. That's when people shine and and can then get promotions. And then I'm not here in the room and not to quote Hamilton, but I'm not in the room where it happens. And that's how I miss out on that that manager role because I I took time away to be with my kids and things. So I've got to show people why I feel like I do have to show people that I can do it all. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we and then we which lead, I think what month was it that we lost one hundred and fifty thousand jobs in the U.S. and they all were women. Right. That's what it is. Right. Because we create unrealistic expectations of people where we don't allow people to say, hey, I'm taking a week off. Right. And that people still have the opportunity to still grow and thrive in their career, even with that time away. But that disproportionately impacts women, particularly women who are mothers. Um, and then, you know, black and brown folks as well. We also fetishize this sort of like burnout culture and we put people on pedestals, especially, you know, women, you've all heard the trope of like, oh, she does it all. It's like oh. she has her family and she's, you know, like she's high powered yes. and she has a family and she's career driven. And she has a um, rocking body. Yeah, and she, yes. like, she gets up at 5 a.m. every day to work out and makes the kids dinner and breakfast and so the and I hate that shit. It 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 annoys I, I just curse, I hope. Um, but <laughs> I hate that crap. Okay, okay. Um, go for it. Yeah. It annoys me, particularly when we when they highlight these celebrities. Do you know she also mm. has five nannies? Yeah. She has someone who cooks her yeah. food. And yeah. And right? like like it's not re- it's not real. We cannot live up to those expectations or those what those famous people who have all this money do. It's not the same. And so really creating a space where people have some grace for themselves when they can't do it all. I think people do that same thing for me. Like I work I work a full-time job. I have a consulting firm on the business that I'm very active with, and I'm also in a doctoral program. And people are like, oh my goodness, you're doing, and they, and it makes them feel like, wow, you're just amazing. Like, no, I'm tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I am, yeah. right? Like I'm exhausted. And yeah, you're right. We got to stop glorifying that um, and really create a space where people can, you know, not feel like if they're not doing all these things that they're missing out on something. Yeah. Or that they're not as much of a person, you know, it's like, we, we right. say these, you know, like he's doing it all. He's got, he's got it all. But you know, does anybody say like, he's so happy. Yes. He's so fulfilled. Oh, no, God. it's happy. just like, calm. it's just the assumption. The assumption is that I have all this like quote unquote great yeah. stuff going on. I have perfect family, perfect job, perfect body. But yep. like that doesn't add up to, you know, feeling like you 
lead a full life feeling like you're enough as a person. If anything, sometimes I feel like it just leaves you wanting more and more and more. My grandmother uh, and some of my mentors always say, do what makes you happy. The money will always come and not, and not money by wealth. Right. But just mo- the money you need to, to thrive and survive will always be there when you're doing what you are most happy doing. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the most important piece. Absolutely. Shifting gears a bit, because we are a podcast about imposter syndrome. Um, I just want to hear what your experience with imposter syndrome has been. Do you have it? Um, how have you learned tools to combat it? What's, what's the, what's the situation? Yeah, I struggle with imposter syndrome all the time. And particularly, uh, in my, uh, doctoral program, because I never thought I would, you know, become doctor for Deha Woodson. Um, it's not something that I ever wanted. And I think a part of not wanting it was also feeling like if I don't want it, then it's okay. If I don't get it because I'm afraid that I won't survive. Right. Um, mm-hmm. so I think definitely think a part of that is it, that, that, that that's a part of it. Um, but yeah, I don't think imposter syndrome ever completely goes away. And it is in my experience. I think you learn to live as Andy says, in some of our, and some of the, 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 the classes on, on the apps, like you never, you know, it's not that you're trying to ignore the thoughts, you're recognizing that it's there. You're mm-hmm. learning to live with them, right? And, and control when and what they come into frame. And I think it's the same thing with this imposter syndrome um, is that I don't think it ever really goes away, but you learn to acknowledge it and you learn some strategies for how to not allow it to stop you from, from greatness and doing things that you want to do. And so for me, my strategies are really surrounding myself with people who lift me up. Mm-hmm. Right. People who remind me, Cornell, you got this right. Like that, that support system is so important to this work. Um, and then also the self-work of reminding myself of how great I am. You know, one of my favorite videos is really old now, but it's this uh, um, African-American mom and her daughter. And the daughter's maybe about two or three years old. And they're standing in the window or in the mirror in the morning doing their morning affirmations. And their morning affirmations, I'm gorgeous. I'm beautiful. And this little two-year-old little girl sitting in the mirror, I'm gorgeous. And she throws her head back and she smiles. But she's reminding herself. She's doing the self-work of reminding herself that when the world tells me I'm not, I know what I am. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the work that we have to really make sure that we're also doing while we're also combating some of that ugly, those, that ugly narrative. We also got to do our own work to make sure that we are reminding ourselves of our greatness and surround ourselves with people who remind us of that as well. So I have imposter syndrome, but it does not stop me from doing all the things that I want to do. Um, and I think it's because of that work that that that's true. Heck yes. I Have you guys heard of if formations? No. Okay. No. I saw this on, I saw this on TikTok last night. So who knows if they're real, but it makes sense. <laughs> I love TikTok. I bought the shower head with the little beads that like clean the water when you use oh, it. Oh my have seen goodness. It. Yeah. What? Wait, I haven't seen that. Does it work? You, I love it. The water smells fresh. So it's amazing. Ooh. So yes, TikTok made me buy it. <laughs> I mean, TikTok is, TikTok is amazing. I can't deal with the haters on TikTok, but, but this was amazing because it was like, if affirmations feel, so I think affirmations probably work at a younger age where mm-hmm. you're still, you still have, you don't have that, um, as you know, rigid self image of yourself, but mm-hmm. if you're maybe older and it feels a little uncomfortable or just kind of, um, kind of fake to say like, I am worthy. I am enough. I right. am, you know, I am loved. Um, affirmations are changing the beginning to be like, what if I'm enough? What if I have enough? Mm-hmm. 
What if I am capable of all the love in the world that, and then it's, it's kind of like a question that, that sounds a little more hopeful rather than than trying to trick yourself into thinking and feeling something you don't actually feel. So I really like that. My therapist actually uses that. So when I talk to her about feeling like, you know, I'm, you know, failing, she goes, what if you're doing exactly what you are supposed to do? What if you're playing your part? In that situation, and maybe your role isn't to fix it all. Your ro- your role is this: you're playing it, and you're you're a part of the process. What if that's the case? And I was like, I don't like I don't like it. I want to fix it. Right <laughs> I, so it's real because she uses that all the time on me, all the time. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, I think imposter syndrome is just all about how you yeah how how it how you relate to those thoughts, and yeah. if you know they can they can motivate you yep. and you know, even maybe lead you to being more prepared, um, for, you know, to just make sure that you are, um, that you're not fulfilling self-fulfilling prophecy of being an imposter, uh, even though that does, it could lead lead to burnout. So we got to be careful with, you know, over-prepare and, and, um, and just being okay with like where you're at. Yeah. And, and, and also being reminded of like where that imposter syndrome comes from, right? Mm-hmm. Does it come from somewhere real? A lot, at least for me and a lot of my friends and people that I know well, the imposter syndrome doesn't come from the fact that they tried and failed. It comes from a, a story of like, well, she tried and they made and, and failed. So I look like her and we're similar. We come from mm-hmm. similar backgrounds. So then I can't do it. Right. And so it, it also, it comes from a, um, uh, a, a false narrative, right? So I think it's so. I, I also find that that to be a part of it as well. It's like, where is this coming from? Why am I feeling this way? And then once I realized that there's no, there's no, there are no, there's no data, there's no real facts behind this feeling. Let me let, let me try. It. And if I fail, cool. I tried it. Yeah. That's the point. Is I, I gave it my all. I did what I could. That that's not my ministry, and that's okay, right? And we keep moving. And most times I think I fail. I actually totally didn't fail. And I did a great job. And yes. that's, that's where it's like, okay, a Taylor, like you got it. Like I have direct We're evidence. Have Taylor therapist as a guest one day. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, you guys would be so lucky because she is just so, just the most uh-huh. perfect person ever. But, uh, but yeah, I'm like, Taylor, now you have concrete evidence that you're in fact, doing the opposite of failing. So cut it out. (laughs) Yes. It's so true. It's so true. But the work is, is remembering that. Right. And because imposter syndrome will always try to get you and be like, well, that question that they asked you wasn't very hard, was it? Right, <laughs> you right, know, or right. you could have done better, or what happened here, or why? You, and just all the things you that think you just got lucky. Like, like yeah. you only did well because you prepared. You looked at the question ahead of time. You prepared. <laughs> you only did well because you prepared. That's why people do right. well. You know, exactly. Like, I mean, it doesn't come natural to you, right? And I think that impacts, <laughs> for example, when women come to the table to negotiate salary. Well, you should just be happy that they chose you. And it's like, oh my God, I've had that thought before. I have that thought all the time. Yes. I should just be happy with what they've given me. No, no, you're worth more. Right. You're worth so much more. You're worth so much more that the company can't even afford how much you're worth. But, but, you know, we'll settle for what they can afford. (laughs) (laughs) As long as it's higher than my initial number. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So true. I know we're, we're, we're up on time. Um, I guess the, the one thing I maybe wanted to leave, leave, uh, and, and this is also, I, I feel weird saying this too. So like, I think we've said, like, we feel really, um, 
we feel really, so we have this platform, right? Where these two white women, um, and we feel like I'm very conscious of the fact that we need to represent all kinds of different voices on this platform, but then putting the burden, kind of what we were talking about earlier with D and I, putting the burden on a person of color or any person of any diversity to explain and educate others. It, mm-hmm. it, I know, like I'm, I'm conscious that that is a burden. Many people are tired of explaining and not being heard. And so I just wonder if, if like, I think our general approach is, is to say, is to have interesting people with different backgrounds come and just talk about their lives yeah. and, um, and hope that some of these conversations come up kind of like they did today. Uh, we didn't yeah. say Cornell talk about diversity. <laughs> like, you know, I so, actually didn't even look at the questions you sent. I came in totally not knowing what, totally what not knowing. exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I just wonder if you have, um, like, what do you think about this approach? Can we, can we be doing more? Should we be doing more with this platform? Like what, what do you think? And and not to, again, put the burden on you to tell us how we should be doing this, but it's just I something but, I but, think about and, and something with the role that you do, you may, you may be yeah. more qualified to answer. I, I, I definitely have some thoughts for <laughs> sure. I think the big thing is what you've already said is who, who, who are you asking to come yeah. share their story? Right. And I think we have a profound opportunity here to lift up the voices of the, of the folks who oftentimes go unnoticed and in silence, right? And so how are we creating, this is a platform that you all have to say, hey, we want to make sure we're getting some trans women in here. We're getting people of color. We're getting, you know, people from, you know, who are um, who are um, disabled or people with a disability, right? Mm-hmm. We're getting all those voices in here to talk from their vantage point about how they see the world and how they navigate it. And that to me is really profound. And then on top of that, you know, what, what I believe you already do is checking your own biases, right. And, and making sure that you're always coming to the table with integrity and authenticity in that way, which I totally felt in this conversation, you clearly did your research, you clearly knew, and that matters, right. The mistakes aren't the thing. It's Mm -hmm. the authenticity in the approach that matters to people, right? So, you know, I think about my friend who, who says like, when someone misgenders me and they go, oh, I'm so sorry, right? That makes me feel, I know that, that mm. where their heart is, right? When you misgender me and don't give a damn, mm. that's a problem, yeah. right? But when you when you misgender me, you clearly made a mistake. We can work together, That that's cool, right? Yeah. So it's authenticity. So I, I think you're doing a lot of it and just continue bringing in those diverse uh, diverse voices um, mm-hmm. and to use this platform to give them a space to really share who they are and what they experience. So thank you for this. This is a great time. I mean, I oh gosh, we will so be, we are thanking you a hundred percent. This has been such an awesome conversation. Awesome. And I, I feel like I'm talking to a celeb cause you're always, you know, at these high, these, these panels and, and announcing. And I'm like, Ooh, I, I honestly, I, I was like, I, we've wanted you to be on for a long time, but I was like, I don't want to bother him. He's like, so, you know, oh, no, I, always make time for, <laughs> y'all, I always make time for family. So anytime. <laughs> if there's a topic you want to unpack, let's unpack it. <laughs> uh, and you really, you said how you, you have like the most perfect retorts for things like mm-hmm. anytime you're writing something in Slack, I'm like, whoa, like that. <laughs> yes. Like that was I'm exactly I'm like quick-witted. I'm plus signing that one, you know, like I love it. And I no love fe- it. And no fear of, yeah. No fear of just like you're, you're stating like your experience, right. you know, doesn't matter if someone had just said something else you come in and I'm like, oh yeah. Like that's, that's, right. that's, that's right. what we're talking about. Oh, I love it. Thank you for that feedback. I, that that's really good to hear. I love that. Yeah. And I think you say, you say things that maybe a lot of people want to say in, in public, more public channels that just don't out of fear of, you know, 
I don't know, uh, retaliation, not, not being heard and people not yeah. understanding. So I think like, I, I don't know. I, I assume I appreciate that you're saying those things and I assume others at the company do. So thank you. Um, thank, thank you, you so much. much for giving us thank your time. You. Thank you. Fun. Thank you. Yes, it was awesome. good. Good. Bye. All right. Talk to you all soon. Yes. Talk to you soon. See you soon. Bye. 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 Bye.